not fear the one and only Tucker Carlson. He's here, right here, right now. Buck up, it's going to get better. Hello, welcome to Tuckered Out. I'm Troy. I'm Tyler. And uh, we're here today to talk way, way too much about Tucker Carlson. <laughs> um, so, last week on our on our show, we recorded on Thursday morning because I was leaving for vacation on Saturday, which is when we usually record. And during that recording, I half-jokingly said that Tucker might do something crazy on Thursday or Friday, and I wouldn't be around to cover it. Turns out I may have inadvertently placed a hex on the world, <laughs> because on Thursday night, Tucker said some crazy shit. And that's what we're going to spend the majority of this episode talking about today. But before we get there, I want to do a quick lightning round of a few of the other narratives that popped up on his show from the 8th through the 16th. So, to start with, Tucker opened his show on the 8th talking about gun control. And that's always a little disheartening for me because, frankly, I've been inundated with the gun control arguments since I was a kid, and I've yet to ever see a productive one. Then after that, he talks about Hunter Biden again, and that, and at that point, I almost just turned it off because I'm so tired. I'm as I'm almost as tired of hearing about Hunter Biden as I am hearing about guns. <laughs> <laughs> then right before the commercial break, Tucker dropped this. So you're not allowed to criticize Bill Gates anymore. If you notice that he's a billionaire, so obviously you bow. But it turns out Bill Gates does have a lot of control over our lives, more than most people understand. We're now learning he's spending a lot of money on a plan to dim the sun. Are you comfortable with Bill Gates dimming the sun? Seems like a lot of power for one man to alter the solar system. We've got details ahead. Bill Gates is going to dim the sun. So this is the first that I've heard of this. Uh, no, he's not. I, <laughs> I haven't heard anything about this. You can't just dim the sun. What are you? <laughs> Bill Gates, Mr. Freeze, they both have glasses. What are you going to do? <laughs> so, also, Bill Gates is like no angel. He's done good things and he's done shitty things. So, like, yeah, we don't I have mean, to go into that. But like, I mean, I. I don't like any billionaire. Um, as yeah. far as billionaires go, Bill Gates is one of the least worst ones, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah, Bill Gates wants to dim the sun, apparently. Uh, Citation he, needed. He's an evil supervillain. <laughs> uh, after he comes back from break, Tucker is going to elaborate on this story a little bit. So when you think of Bill Gates, you think of some guy who made billions out of creating super clunky corporate software. What you didn't realize is that Bill Gates doesn't think of himself that way. Bill Gates doesn't think of himself as some guy who got super rich making bad software. Bill Gates thinks of himself as God in control of the solar system. And that's why Bill Gates is now backing something called sun dimming technology that would reflect sunlight out of the Earth's atmosphere, causing global cooling. Ooh, that's not fraught with risks. <laughs> you thought gain of function research on pathogens was dangerous. Try that. But that doesn't stop Harvard University. Its scientists are testing that technology by spewing calcium carbonate dust into the atmosphere. Bill Gates is backing the first high-altitude experiment of one radical climate change solution, creating a massive chemical cloud that could cool the Earth. It's called solar geoengineering, and it's highly controversial. It would look something like this. Thousands of planes would fly very high and use nozzles to inject millions of tons of light-reflecting particles into the stratosphere. 
it would create a thin chemical cloud of those particles around the whole planet, blocking some sunlight from reaching the surface. It would mimic a giant volcanic eruption, which we know cools the Earth. Now, just to restate, Bill Gates is not God. Bill Gates is some kind of weird, socially awkward rich guy who lives in Seattle. He doesn't own the planet, but he's now changing the planet single-handedly. This is not just over his yard in Seattle. This is over your yard and our oceans and the whole planet. Now, according to Forbes, Frank Kutch, who is the project's top investigator, quote, does not know what the results might bring. We'll just experiment with the globe and find out what happens. It's cool, though. He's a billionaire. Okay, so Tucker's doing this on purpose, right? He's dimming the sun in the same way that I dim the sun every time I put on sunglasses? Is that... <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it's like a giant sunglasses for the atmosphere. <laughs> also, if that works, that sounds awesome. Yeah, so this wasn't Bill Gates' idea. Geoengineering endeavors like this have been getting attention in climate activist circles for a long time. I first heard about this in, like, 2017, I think. Oh, okay. I've never heard until now, so... It's, uh, it's looked at as a potential stopgap measure to slow or mitigate the effects of climate change and give us time to actually address the problem. Um, so a few more years of survival <laughs> before the extinction of our species. I'll take it. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> um, in particular, the project being talked about here is one created by Harvard scientists called Scopex. I did not write down what that stands for, <laughs> but it's called Scopex. Scopex. Uh, okay. Scopex did pick up Bill Gates as a financial backer, among several others. The project initially planned to release a small amount of aerosols into the atmosphere via a high-altitude balloon from the S-Range space station in Karuna, Sweden, to, quote, test whether it could in the future carry equipment to release solar radiation-reflecting particles into the Earth's atmosphere. However, a Harvard advisory board has recently suspended the project, pending further review of its ethical implications. The project was initially planned to launch in June of this year, but will now be postponed until at least 2022. It, Tucker wants to present the idea that like Bill Gates cooked this up in a lab. <laughs> yeah. It's it's just a, a project that he went on as an investor. He invests in a lot of shit. Right. And I can't prove this, but the announcement that it was postponed came five days ago, which was two days after Tucker's segment here. So I think he might have actually <laughs> generated enough outrage to get this project postponed, which sucks. Yes, it does. So yeah, after that, Tucker's he, he's going to take a little trip to New York to complain about a new cash assistance program there. So New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is weak. He's been weakened by all the sex harassment stories. So the ideologues in the state are bending him to their will. Cuomo just announced that the state will distribute up to $15,600 to, quote, undocumented immigrants who lost work during the pandemic. It's not clear what kind of ID these undocumented immigrants, people who have no respect for our country or here illegally, what are they going to provide to show that they're undocumented or entitled to payment? What is clear is that all this is going to cost New York more than $2 billion. The question is, who's going to live there, actually, after all this kind of nonsense? Colin Schmidt thinks about that. He's a state assemblyman in New York and a candidate for Congress. He joins us now. Mr. Schmidt, thanks so much for coming on. I'm sincerely worried. I mean this for real. Who's going to stay in New York when they start doing things like this? Absolutely, Tucker. This is a disaster for New York taxpayers. We have Governor Cuomo and the Albany Democrats ramming through a budget, which is going to provide up to $15,600 in free taxpayer cash to illegal immigrants. Uh, they're going to raise taxes $4 billion to help pay for it. 
And Tucker, the kicker on top of it, this budget also gives the governor's appointed budget staffer, just the staffer, unilateral power to reduce local police department state funding by up to 50 percent if he does not, uh, they do not comply with the governor's new policing mandates. People are being forced to leave New York, and this is example number one. What I mean, how in just really quick, what's the thinking here that, you know, illegal immigrants, illegal aliens have suffered more than citizens? Like, why in the world would U.S. taxpayers owe someone breaking our laws $15,000? It is an affront to New York taxpayers. And it really just shows that Governor Cuomo, who's engulfed in scandal, is not capable of leading the state. He's under immense political pressure, and he's using money out of taxpayers' wallets to try to cling to power, right. to appease the furthest left fringes of the state legislature, to really try to hold on to his seat. That's they did the exact same thing to Governor Blackface Klan robes in Virginia. He didn't resign, and then the lunatics just descended on him like jackals and made him their marionette. They do it to Joe Biden. Are you going to stay in New York? I'm staying in New York. I'm fighting for my home state. We we should always be the empire state. Cuomo and the, yeah. the radical left have turned us into the exodus state. But I'm going to stay and fight, and I'm going to be introducing in the coming days a bill to repeal this free taxpayer cash for illegal immigrants fund. It's, it's completely unacceptable, especially in this pandemic, when so many of our taxpayers are suffering or out of work or having trouble meeting ends meet, paying their mortgage, putting food on the table. Yeah. I mean, this just shows you how backwards the priorities are. It is. So, Tyler, are, are you I mean, we don't live in New York, but are you ready to leave New York? Uh yeah, I mean, they're going to be charging me taxes to help poor people? That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, I assume that you're going to elucidate this issue, but it's it's um, interesting how conservatives are so concerned about the burdens that taxpayers are paying when it's going to help poor people and how they don't give a shit when it's going towards the military or giving tax cuts to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, they don't actually care about the burden on taxpayers. They just don't think that poor people deserve money. <laughs> yeah, and it's a bit of a digression, but we're going to talk a decent amount in this episode about a guy named Mark Stein. He's someone I'm going to pay a bit more attention to going forward because I'm noticing he tends to pop up on Fox News whenever they veer the most, like, extreme. All right. And I, I was watching some, uh, some videos of Mark Stein. Uh, last night, and one of the things that he said that I think is maybe true in a way that scares me is that the conventional wisdom always was like conservatives wanted to go for like fiscally conservative and socially liberal, and that was like the sweet spot in these Midwestern swing states. He says that what Trump discovered is that the actual sweet spot is fiscally liberal and culturally conservative. Okay. And, I mean, evidentially, I don't think he's necessarily wrong. That seems to do pretty well for him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and part of that is, like, it's okay to spend money, just not on the wrong people. Right. So, yeah. New York's 2021 budget includes a $2.1 billion fund to provide assistance to undocumented residents who lost work during the pandemic. Tucker's frame that everyone gets $15,600 is a lie. Rather, undocumented workers who can prove that they live in New York lost income because of the pandemic, and were ineligible for unemployment benefits, if they can prove those three things, they become eligible to receive the equivalent of $300 per week for the duration that they were out of work, up to a cap of 15600 So to receive that full amount, they would have to have been out of work for a full 52 weeks and be able to prove it. 
And that can be difficult when a lot of these people are paid under the table, given that they're undocumented. Mm-hmm. For those who can only prove their residency and that they they work in New York, they will be eligible for a smaller sum, up to 3200 which is the amount that most Americans have so far received from stimulus checks, 1200 plus 600 plus 1400 Keep in mind that this is far, far less than most Americans who lost work during the pandemic were able to receive through unemployment. For months, there was an extra $600, and the the people eligible for this program are only eligible for a base three a week. Okay. So arguments that this is undocumented people getting special treatment is bullshit. Tucker also complains <laughs> that to pay for this program, New York is raising its taxes. That's also a misdirection. The creation of this fund was only a small portion of New York's $212 billion budget for 2021. That budget plan does include a tax increase for large corporations and for the state's top earners. Under the plan, individuals who make more than $1 million a year, or couples who make more than $2 million a year, will see their tax rate increase from 8.82% to 9.65%. Oh, no. What are they going to (laughs) do? Those who make more than $5 million per year will see their tax rate grow to 10.3%, and those who make more than $25 million a year will see their tax rate go to 10.9%. The budget also increases taxes on corporations with income greater than $5 million per year. For those businesses, the business income tax rate increases from 6.5% to 7.25%. Altogether, this is expected to raise about $4.3 billion annually, enough to pay for this undocumented worker program twice over and still have some left. Meanwhile, if you're making less than a million dollars a year, your taxes aren't changing. So, so for, like, almost everyone in New York. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're just upset that the wrong people are getting help. Yep. I, I predicted what you were going to say. I feel like a genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. That's, that's why you co-host the show. <laughs> <laughs> you are too kind, right? So, and th- that was the end of Thursday's show. On Friday, Tucker opens up by bitching about AOC with Jimmy Dore, and I don't care. Um... <sighs> Then he bullshits about a BLM co-founder buying an expensive house. I looked into it just a little bit, not much because it's not interesting to me at all. But um, who cares? <laughs> it, it doesn't. It seems like there's no evidence that she used any like BLM funds to purchase this home. She has income from other sources. Costs money to head a movement. <laughs> <laughs> and then he talks about Julian Assange for some reason and makes some really transphobic jokes about the CEO of CNN transitioning. So that it won't be a sexist environment for female employees, which I don't even want to touch. It's going to piss me off. (laughs) Um, Can't imagine why. (laughs) So we're not covering any of that. Starting on Monday the 12th, Tucker wants to talk about the shooting of Duante Wright. His stance is pretty predictable, and there's nothing new he brings to the story, so he didn't cut any clips of it. I mean, the way he talks about this, as you can expect, he downplays, like, oh, well, I should back up, so... Do you know what happened with, like, the Duante Wright situation? Um, I think so. Re- tell me if I have the wrong person. Duante Wright was shot by the female police officer who claims to have accidentally grabbed her gun instead of the taser? Yes. That's Duante Wright? Okay, then yeah. Yeah, and in the video, she's shouting, taser, taser, but fires her service weapon. So Tucker's stance on this is, like, it. obviously she wasn't a very good cop. She probably shouldn't have been on the force in the first place, but this has nothing to do with racism. You know, interesting how only female cops are held accountable when they shoot black people. It, yeah, that that is interesting, huh? <laughs> so then, uh, let's see. He also wants to talk about the U.S. trying to provoke a war between Ukraine and Russia, which I'm sure we're going to get a chance to talk about next week if I know Tucker, and we have plenty of other content to fill this week. Um, I'm so excited! <laughs> Can't wait. 
Yeah, so then on Tuesday, he lies about vaccines, and I don't have any clips of that because it's a lot of meandering. It's spread out over like three days on his show, and a lot of it's stuff we covered on our first episode. You trust a doctors? Yeah, yeah. Weirdo. <laughs> That's pretty gay of you. <laughs> uh, his two new-ish lies about the vaccines. Um, so the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was temporarily pulled off the market because uh, claims are being investigated that out of 7 million doses, it might have resulted in six people developing blood clots. Six. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I wish I had a calculator out. Six out of 7 million is astronomically low, and they're still discontinuing it. That is a testament to how seriously they're taking the safety of these vaccines. Right, yeah, that that should prove that, like, it, these are pretty fucking safe, if that's what we're jumping the gun Exactly. <laughs> um, and then he, he lies about Pfizer admitting that their vaccine dose isn't enough to be effective. What he's actually talking about is that the Pfizer CEO said that they only know for certain they're effective six months out and that a booster shot might be necessary, which is something they've said the whole time. Okay. In the next clip, Tucker talks about the Justice Department's decision not to file any charges against the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt at the Capitol riot. I don't often like to make a big deal out of Tucker's hypocrisy on this show, because that's, one, that's all we would ever do, and... <laughs> Tucker doesn't give a fuck anyway if he's hypocritical. It, it bounces right off him. Uh, but this one is just too blatant for me to ignore. And now this, the ironically named Civil Rights Division of the Biden Justice Department announced today there will be no charges brought against the man who shot and killed protester Ashley Babbitt in the Capitol back in January. No one who pays attention was surprised to hear this. In cases like this, the benefit of the doubt usually does go to law enforcement. And as we've often said, we are fine with that. It should. But still, in a free society, the rest of us have a right to know roughly what happened. In this case, we have a right to know who shot Ashley Babbitt and why. No one will tell us. The Biden administration says the man who killed Babbitt is a Capitol Hill police officer and he did the right thing. That's all they've said. We know that Ashley Babbitt was short, she was female, and she was unarmed. There was no evidence the officer who killed her gave her any kind of verbal warning before he pulled the trigger. Is that now standard procedure? We'd imagine the rules of engagement for federal agents were limited to the use of deadly force in situations where law enforcement has reason to believe they or the people they're around are in imminent danger of being harmed. You can't just shoot people without warning because they're in the wrong place. That's not allowed. That's not allowed, Tyler. It's not? <laughs> I got a very different impression from looking at the news every day for the last... <laughs> Yeah, this is fucking ridiculous. Like, I mean, I agree in principle that Ashley Babbitt shouldn't have been shot, and I think the officer probably should have faced some consequences for that. But why does Tucker only care about this person, yeah. who's who's white, presumably, yes? Yes. Um, and not anyone else who gets shot who's brown. Yeah, I mean, like, 30 seconds ago, Tucker was downplaying the death of Duante White. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, he does this shit all the time in the opposite direction. It's it's ridiculous that in this case it's like, oh, this is this is a terrible miscarriage of justice. Fuck you. Yeah. Um so I, I know we're we're like chugging along at a great pace and I just wanted this is not specifically Tucker Carlson related, but it is police violence related. I just wanted to point out to anyone who doesn't already know that this week body cam footage was released of the shooting of, uh, I think his name was Adam Toledo. Uh, I'll double check. 
Adam Toledo was a 13-year-old boy oh, who was Christ. unarmed and had his hands raised, and he was shot to death by police on March 29th in Chicago. Uh, yep, yeah, Adam Toledo. I got his name right. Um, so, yeah, I just want to point out that um, the police suck. All cops are bastards and defund the police. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Um. Okay, yeah. Um. Just want to throw that out there so people know. <laughs> that is as important to know as it is terrible to know. Yep. <laughs> a 13-year-old kid. God, I was such an idiot when I was 13. I'm so lucky I'm fucking white. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I remember, like, that that was that was the age that I was standing outside the middle school shouting at random people because I thought it was funny to put them in awkward situations. <laughs> I think only you remember that about your middle school because I sure don't. So this is probably good. <laughs> so other people probably don't remember either. But yeah, as far as projection goes, Tucker's just getting started. Are you sensing a theme here? The standards that big news organizations use to cover shootings depend entirely on the political views of the people who get shot. So close. <laughs> when the Washington Post doesn't like the candidates you vote for, they suppress the details of the case. In the case of Ashley Babbitt, we know next to nothing about how she died, and we wouldn't know anything if her shooting hadn't been captured on video by people who don't work at the Washington Post. One of those people is a video editor from Texas called Samuel Montoya. Montoya was in the U.S. Capitol that day. Montoya doesn't look much like a white supremacist. He has no criminal history that we're aware of. On January 6th, Samuel Montoya took what may be the clearest video of Ashley Babbitt's death. So Tucker plays the video. I, I didn't cut that because this is an audio medium. It doesn't do us any good. Yeah. But yeah, uh, so he he mentions there that we only know about Ashley Babbitt's death because Samuel Montoya got this on video. Tucker conveniently neglects to mention that Samuel Montoya was there taking videos of the riot because he works for InfoWars. Oh my god. <laughs> so he's going to step up to the plate and defend Samuel Montoya a little bit going forward. So there are a lot of things to notice about that tape. It's a very sad tape, but here's what jumps out. Ashley Babbitt had no weapon. She wasn't attacking anyone. She couldn't attack anyone because she was climbing through a window at the moment she was shot. But what is most striking and never discussed is that several Capitol Hill police officers in paramilitary gear, the guys with the helmets with the cameras, were standing directly behind Ashley Babbitt when she were, was killed. They were carrying what Joe Biden refers to as weapons of war, loaded AR-15s. So explain to us slowly how Ashley Babbitt posed an imminent physical threat to anyone when she was killed. Well, she didn't. Samuel Montoya's footage proves it. And we're grateful that we have that tape. If we didn't have that tape, the New York Times would be telling us that Ashley Babbitt was beating people to death with a fire extinguisher when she was killed. But thanks to Samuel Montoya, the New York Times cannot claim that. We'd love to have Samuel Montoya tonight on the show to describe what he saw that day, but we can't do that because he's in jail. Yesterday, a large group of armed federal agents showed up at Montoya's home in Austin, Texas. They smashed his front door, they confiscated his electronic devices, and they threw him in jail. He's still there. He's behind bars right now. So I, I tried to look into it a little bit. I couldn't find any evidence that that's how the arrest went down, but maybe. I don't know. As far as Tucker being so appalled that Ashley Babbitt was unarmed and she couldn't have fought back, she was climbing through a window... I wonder if he was this upset about when Breonna Taylor got shot while she was fucking asleep. I am 100% certain he wasn't. 
So what was his crime? Well, to find out, we read the Biden administration's arrest warrant application. The FBI says it began investigating Sammy Montoya after one of his family members provided, quote, proof that Montoya was physically inside the U.S. Capitol near the shooting of a woman on January 6th, 2021, end quote. Now, to be clear, Montoya did not shoot the woman, Ashley Babbitt. He just happened to be nearby. But wait a second. Weren't there plenty of journalists inside the Capitol on January 6th? Well, according to CNN, yes, there were. In fact, CNN ran a piece telling us that, quote, congressional reporters became the country's eyes and ears as rioters stormed the Capitol. So the question is, why hasn't the FBI arrested the people that CNN identified in its story? The photographers from Getty, for example, the political reporters from NBC News, the congressional correspondents from CNN itself and from the AP. Well, that's a good question. The FBI explains why in the warrant affidavit, quote, at times during the video, Montoya describes himself to others inside the Capitol building as a reporter or a journalist as he attempts to get through the crowds. And yet, the FBI concludes, the director of the congressional press galleries within the Senate press office did a name check on Samuel Christopher Montoya and confirmed that no one by that name has congressional press credentials as an individual or via any other news organization. Oh, so that's a standard. If the U.S. Congress's credentialing office says you're not a journalist, then you're not a journalist. Did Samuel Montoya have strong personal political views? Apparently he did. But you may have noticed that's not so unusual in journalism right now. So why is journalist Samuel Montoya behind bars tonight? Well, he committed a crime, quote, interfering with government business. In other words, trespassing. Okay. If this happened in Ukraine, what are the chances that NBC News would describe Sanyu Montoya as a dissident journalist and then describe Ashley Babbitt as an unarmed pro-democracy demonstrator? The chances are roughly 100%. But this is America, and they're not saying that. Instead, they're telling us that Ashley Babbitt deserved to die. No one is saying that. Um, True. <laughs> so what he's trying to obfuscate there Sam Montoya was arrested for trespassing because he did not have a press pass. Um, right. In order to be in the Capitol as a journalist, you need a press pass. That's always true. Tucker fucking knows that. And if you don't have a press pass, then you're not authorized to be there. So he was trespassing. Yeah. <laughs> what? Like, this is. He laid it all out. He said, I don't understand why he got arrested. He just didn't have a pass to be in the Capitol at that time, and then he got arrested for being in the Capitol. I don't get it. What? Yeah, it's so What stupid. the hell, Tucker? Like, how dumb do you think your audience is, man? Something that just brings me immense joy, though, that I do want to point out is that I listened to Alex Jones talking about the Sam Montoya arrest, and uh, Alex, no less than three times, pronounced his last name wrong. He called him Sam Mo Motea. Oh my god. And he's his fucking employee, so if I were Sam, I'd be trying to go work for Tucker. <laughs> I mean, Sam Montoya must have known who he was signing up with if he was going to work with Alex Jones, right? Like, like he, he knew that was going to happen? Yeah, it, it, at this point, it, it, it's, it's your fault if you go to work there. <laughs> it's probably, like, even if you're painted as a martyr on Tucker Carlson's show, he won't mention where you work. <laughs> Yeah, so then I have one more clip of Tucker talking about how bad Ashley Babbitt's death was. Th this is just a cherry on top. But not everyone gets the same treatment you may have noticed. And that should worry you, no matter who you voted for. 
no matter how fervently you may support Joe Biden, this is a huge society ending problem. Laws have no meaning if they are not applied equally. When they are not applied equally, they're not even laws. They are purely tools of persecution. And you don't want to live in a country like that, even if people you don't like are the ones being persecuted. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, you got it. You're right, Tucker. Yeah, you, you nailed it, dude. <laughs> Ah, oh, it's fucking ridiculous. If only there were easily identifiable groups in America to whom the laws do not apply equally right now <laughs> that we could identify. <laughs> fucking crazy. My god, dude. <laughs> so, yeah, after Tucker completely fails to understand the context of the world he lives in, uh, he goes back to the vaccine thing. After he lied about the Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer vaccines the other day, Chelsea Clinton made a public statement that Facebook should block Tucker's content from being shared because he is spreading dangerous misinformation about public health, which he is. Mm -hmm. Tucker brings on, of all people, Glenn Beck to talk about this. And Does Glenn Beck still have a show? I, I'm, I'm not sure, honestly. I, he's someone I've never paid much attention to. I mean, he's really annoying, so like, <laughs> I, I get it. Um, I just know that people in my family whose opinions I don't respect listen to Glenn Beck, so... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's that's the guy. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they, they don't say much worthwhile, but I, I did keep one thing in just as a hobby of mine, because I love fake quotes. Um, and Glenn Beck drops a good one here. Thomas Jefferson said at one point, trust the American people. They may get it right. Uh, they may get it wrong from time to time, but eventually they will figure it out. I would rather be judged by a group of farmers than all of these elites in the academic institutions. That's Jefferson, and he's right. The experts don't run our lives. They don't run our country, although they are seemingly starting to run everything in our life and in our country. People are supposed to be running it. And when you make a good case, then, then we'll follow. All right. Glenn Beck seems to be seems to be conflating two different quotes here. The first half, about America getting it wrong at first but always doing the right thing in the end, it's a spurious quote often falsely attributed to Winston Churchill. It's typically phrased as, uh, Americans can always be counted on to do the right thing after they've exhausted every other option. <laughs> <laughs> that seems more that seems more applicable, yeah. Um, the second half, about being judged by farmers rather than by... Uh, in this case, he says experts. The actual fake quote is usually, I'd rather be judged by 12 farmers than 12 scholars. That one is commonly attributed to Thomas Jefferson, though there's no record of him actually saying or writing it. <laughs> I tried to find the origin of that quote, and the earliest known appearance of it seems to be from an appearance by Glenn Beck on the Jay Leno show in 2007. So Glenn Beck is misremembering his own made-up quote here. <laughs> <laughs> So, fake quote aside, just taking what Glenn Beck says at face value, um, it took us 200 years to get black people the right to vote. So, like, if Americans get it right eventually, his patience is impeccable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Americans get it right after four generations. Yeah. <laughs> after all the old people die. <laughs> um, that's all I've got. For the, the other stories of the week outside of the main thing we're going to be talking about. Much of the rest of the week was pretty boring. He talks a lot more about that BLM co-founder with the fancy house. 
Um, he whines that a government a government official said nice things about Al Sharpton on Friday. He does get into UFOs a little bit, which excited me tremendously. But the actual segment was very boring. And all it is is um, there's a video that was circulating for a while of like these pyramid shaped objects flying around some U.S. Navy ships, and the Pentagon just confirmed that the video was real, which is cool. Just they don't know anything more about it, so there's nothing more they can say. So I was a little disappointed. I know a fuck ton about UFOs. At me if you have any questions. <laughs> <laughs> so then, I, I can delay it no longer. We've got to talk about white genocide. Oh, great. Noted real thing that happens in the world. <laughs> in a little bit, we are going to listen to what Tucker said last Thursday that made the Anti-Defamation League call for his firing. But I want us to go into that with context. So I'm going to step just a little bit further back in time for a moment. One thing that we need to understand if we're going to be able to make sense of this is that Tucker Carlson is very slippery. He's very good at wiggling out of traps. And to show how that works for him in the real world, I'm going to play a clip from a speech he gave at the 2019 National Conservatism Conference. This conference is kind of a big deal in Tucker's world, and while it is almost uniformly intended by conservatives, it attracts a broad range of them, from libertarians to Tea Party people to fascists to Bush-era compassionate conservatives. And there's a variety of thought there, and not all of them necessarily like Tucker Carlson. There are also journalists there reporting on the goings-on at the conference, and keep in mind this is 2019, so while Tucker was definitely a star, he wasn't number one yet, and ostensibly there could possibly be consequences if he stepped too far out of line. So after his speech at the conference, when Tucker starts taking questions from the audience, the very first question seems designed to, to draw a controversial remark out of Tucker. And the way he maneuvers answering that question is very revealing. We'll talk more about what I mean by that on the, on the other side of this clip. His answer is seven and a half minutes long. Um, oh boy. <laughs> and I know it's a lot and we will be breaking it up a bit, but I want to try to give it as much room to breathe as we can. As the official, uh, uh, the voice, the voice of, of, of the audience, question number one. Oh, what is the most important thought we still haven't given ourselves permission to think? <laughs> or, 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 okay, maybe let's make it easier. What is the most important thought we haven't given ourselves permission to say out loud? Um. <laughs> I, you know, I probably have said I know it that's out loud. A, I know that's a trick question. <laughs> Whatever it is. I know that's a trick question. <laughs> You know, it. So he's about to get into his answer, but I think even that pause is important. Tucker hesitates there uh, for a little over 10 seconds before he actually starts to answer the question, and that's not normal. I watch a lot of Tucker Carlson in a lot of different contexts, and one thing he almost never does is hesitate. He's quick and confident. The reason for the hesitancy here is that he's planning how he's going to answer this question in a way the audience wants without getting himself into trouble. He basically says as much later. The thing that I go back to, and I, I'm not even sure that, I mean, this is not like spine-tinglingly controversial, but it's almost never said, you know, countries don't hang together just because. The, the natural st state of man is not progress. I mean, that's like a complete lie. Do you, anyone know what the Bronze Age collapse was? Yeah, okay, so the one, the one, one person. So the Bronze Age collapse was, there, there was a Dark Age before the Dark Ages. 
right? So it was about 1,500 years, 1,500 BC. 1,200 BC, okay. I knew it. Look, I, I, I bowed to superior knowledge. Used to. Um, when basically the sum total of human knowledge disappeared. And we're not quite sure. We're still trying to kind of figure out. We may never know. But it mirrored very much the Dark Ages. By the way, do you know how medieval Europe, and, and by the way, all the way into Levant, uh, the medieval world, got lead? Lead, the substance lead? for pipes and cooking and later for ammunition. They took it from Roman ruins. That's, that was the sole source of it, from Roman ruins. Because the technology, which is not complex technology, required to mine lead and separate it from silver or zinc or whatever, because it's an alloy usually, um, was lost. No one had any idea how to do it. Only for like a thousand years, not a big deal. So I guess... What's the point? The point is that there's no reason that this should continue apace on the trajectory it's currently on. There's no reason that shouldn't happen again. It's happened at least twice, probably happened more than that. But by its nature, we don't know, right? So what's the point? The point is, what does it take to hold a country together, particularly a country in which there's no majority? So now, a little over two minutes into his answer, he finally inserts the demographic component. He's built up that it's possible for powerful countries to collapse entirely, and then mentions that uh, in a country with no majority and no shared history holding it together, he's, he's couching his answer here in fake context. And I think that's going to become more clear as we listen. Okay. Right? Where there's no obvious thing that holds people together, not even history, because it's such the demographics change so much. I'm not against that, by the way. I'm not against, there's nothing inherently bad about rapid demographic change. And I'm not, or immoral. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that it makes it even more important for the people in charge to think through, like, what does hold the country together? What do we have in common as Americans? If a war were to break out, why would we all fight? And what are we fighting for? What is this country? What does it mean? Is it just the, G- the sum total of commerce? Is it the GDP? Is it something more than that? I mean, these are not only interesting academic questions. They're vital practical questions. Because if you don't answer them, the country will actually fall apart for real. That's not a right-wing point. It's an obvious point. And it's a measure of how unbelievably stupid, and I, and I mean that like literally stupid, like low IQ stupid, bovine stupid, the people in charge are, that they're not waking up in the middle of the night and thinking, holy smokes, clearly the society is becoming a lot more volatile. How do we calm things down? How do we keep it strong? Yeah, so I'm not saying there's anything inherently bad about demographic change. I'm just saying that it erodes our shared history that holds the country together. And we could spiral into another Bronze Age collapse. Um, um. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, what what I'm kind of hearing is um, that change in society is not natural. Yeah. And, that- like, that's really vague and nebulous, but, like, that that's so... <laughs> Like, the foundation of the conservative mindset is that we've changed enough 
when are you going to stop making me change stuff? <laughs> yes, that and that is a remarkably consistent focal point for him. <laughs> yeah. And nobody is. Like, literally nobody is. So I would say pressing that question, boy, we pressed it a lot. You know, it's not an, I'm, again, I just made a case for diversity. But the idea that diversity is our strength, okay, tell me how. Is that true in your marriage? I'm serious. Is it? And I'm sure, I know there are a bunch of reporters here, and screw you, just ahead of time. Um, but I know they're going to be like, oh, Carlson comes out against diversity. I'm not coming out against diversity at all. I like diversity, actually. Just don't lie to me about it. Just don't lie. Just stop lying. How's that? And why don't you explain how it works? If you're going to make it our national motto, don't you owe me? And speak slowly so I can understand. So, four and a half minutes into his answer, Tucker acknowledges that reporters may attack him on this point, um, impl implicitly inserting the idea that's going to take him out of context and preemptively defanging their attacks. Uh, that context, he, he can do that because he built up this fragile styrofoam context that doesn't actually hold up his argument, but it looks enough like it does that now he feels safe attacking the concept of diversity. Right. How does it make us stronger? If I married someone who couldn't, I've been married, you know, almost 29 years. If I married someone who couldn't speak English and hated all my views, would that make my marriage stronger? Maybe it would. Tell me how. If you had a military unit comprised of people with literally nothing in common, couldn't communicate, would that be a more effective fighting force? Would it be more cohesive? Like, it's insane, actually. Is, is the truth. And again, it goes back to what I was implying previously, which is like everything they say is the opposite of what's true. <laughs> it's like totally bewildering. It's not, and it's, what's so bewildering is, and maybe that's why it's so effective, it's so different from the way normal people lie. So I have a ton of children, like Mormon level of children. And I'm not like a great parent or anything, but I, I, you know, you just sort of learn by osmosis if you have enough of them. And one of the things that I learned a lot about is lying because all kids lie and they lie because they love you. They don't lie because they're bad. No, I'm serious. You don't lie to people you don't care about. When was the last time you lied to an Uber driver? Please. You spill your guts. If you're having an affair, you'll tell him. Why do you care? His judgment doesn't, doesn't strike fear into your heart. It's like it's irrelevant. Anyway, so kids lie because they love you. So you see a lot of lying as a parent, and it's always the same kind of lying. Like, you know, we're... We're at a, you, ate, you, ate, you ate those cookies. You know, there were 10 cookies and they're gone and you ate them. And your kid will be like, oh, I only had three. What happened to the other seven? I don't know. You know, it's a shade off of the truth. Yes, I ate the cookies, but I didn't eat all 10. Like, that's ridiculous. That's outrageous. I would never do that. Yeah, you did it. Of course you did it. The people who run our country don't lie like that at all. They're like, what? No, you ate the cookies. <laughs> And you're like, what? No, I, no, I didn't eat the, yeah, you, you, you ate the cookies. You freaking cookie eater. That's why you're fat. And after a while, you're like, man, maybe I, maybe I ate the cookies. They're so aggressive. The dishonesty is so aggressive that it really makes you doubt yourself. It's deep, actually, and terrifying and totalitarian really, because it doesn't have any basis in reality at all.
And that's why it's so effective. Anyway, and that's why they can say diversity is our strength. Anyway. All right. What did any of that have to do with diversity? Okay, so <laughs> the, all right, I'm, I'm sure you have like things prepared for this, no, but go ahead. Uh, something that I like, was trying to pick up on. Um, he was talking about diversity, and then he compares diversity in society to diversity in a marriage, which is not analogous. Society is more complex than a marriage. He does the same thing for the military. It's not analogous. A society is more complex than a military force. And then he goes on a weird rant about how he's a smart parent. He tries to be <laughs> humble about it, but he's like trying to say, oh, I'm a good parent. I know, I know how my kids act. And then circles back to diversity again, yeah. just to complain about politicians without saying what his actual pol political problems are. He's just saying, oh, they're bad people. They lie to you. Yeah. Without saying how or what the actual problem is. Yes. Just that they're, they're telling you diversity is good, and I don't think it's good for no reason. <laughs> yeah, it, six and a half minutes into that answer, he pivots into this line about elites telling you that you ate the cookies. Uh, that's a line he uses all the time in like interviews and speeches and stuff, and it always reliably gets a laugh. Uh, he's deflating tension. If your hackles were raised when he started talking about diversity not actually being a good thing, then he makes you laugh at this ridiculous cookie analogy and it eases you. Then after you've accepted the premise of that joke, he quickly hooks you into this point that that's why they can say diversity is our strength. He's good at this. Like, yep. <laughs> that, that answer is a masterclass in obfuscation. Yeah, yeah. The question, what haven't we given ourselves permission to say out loud... Tucker's answer to that question is diversity is not our strength and too much of it actually makes the country weaker, but he takes you on this winding road to get there where he builds all these bulwarks against criticism. Mm -hmm. He, like he like you said, defangs the criticism that he knows is going to come because he knows his ideas are bad and wrong. <laughs> yes, yeah. Like, it, th there's a reason he's gotten so far in this game. He's right. fucking good at it. It's like, well, the elites are going to hate that I say this. It's like, shut up. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to talk about Tucker's vague endorsement about some conspiracy theories here. And there's one more point I wanted to make up front. I've never called Tucker a conspiracy theorist, and I doubt I ever will. He's not the type to be connecting newspaper clippings with strings on a corkboard in his basement. He isn't theorizing. He is, however, a conspiracist. And the difference is relevant here. Conspiracy theories as a concept aren't necessarily crazy. There have been tons of real conspiracies throughout history. You could fill a book with things the FBI and the CIA have done in secret. Even outside the government, it was a conspiracy theory that oil companies were suppressing climate science, and oh hey, that's true. Um, it's not outside the bounds of reality for a group of people to conspire in a way that helps them achieve a goal. Conspiracism is something different, though. Conspiracism is the worldview that pretty much everything that happens is part of a grand global conspiracy. That there are puppet masters behind the scenes orchestrating major world events. If you want an example that shows this is how Tucker sees the world, here's another clip from 2019. In this one, Tucker is a guest on the Greatest Music of All Time podcast. He mostly talks about how much he loves the Grateful Dead. <laughs> But around the middle of the interview, they begin talking about how they both dislike mainstream pop music because it's corporate and not real art. Listen to Tucker explain how he thinks about this. 
Keep in mind, he's just talking about the existence of music he doesn't like here. Do you, do you feel that it's a bit like, uh, you know, I mean, you, met, you made the camembert analogy, but do you think it's a, a bit like with, with this stuff, it's like junk food, you know, you, you get addicted to it and then... Oh, yeah. Uh, and then you can't really appreciate kind of culture with more depth or more, you know, long form culture. It does feel like a lot of people do actually want to listen to the mass produced stuff. That's what's quite worrying. Well, all it is, it's just a way to distract you until you die. I mean, that's what a lot of the Internet is. You know, all of us have this anxiety within us because we're born knowing that it ends. And the question of mass culture becomes how do you pacify people into ignoring those yearnings and that anxiety and the edginess that's just existential. And you do it by anesthetizing them, by distracting them sufficient that they don't ever actually have to face what's going on. You numb them rather than, you know, make their senses more acute. And that's, I mean, that's what's going on with everything, with pharmaceuticals, with food. I'm sorry to say it. I'm sure you're a huge weed smoker, but with weed to some extent. <laughs> no, it's no, true. I'm not. I'm not because I worry about getting too addicted to, to weed, which yeah, I'm, not, I'm not meant to be addicted. I'm, I'm, ad I'm proudly addicted to nicotine. I'll never give it up. I, I, it enhances my life. It makes my life sharper and it increases my sensual acuity. And that's what I want. But I think that, you know, music is just part of a much larger phenomenon where the people who are getting the richest understand that they've got a deeply unsatisfied population kind of writhing beneath them and it's like how do we calm these people down and distract them to the point where they're not actually going to do anything that gets in the way of you know the good deals we've set up for ourselves i mean i'm sorry i'm not a conspiracy nut but i actually see it in those terms because why else would you feed people crap like that you know that dulls them rather than sharpens them why would you do that to your own kids i've got four kids i would not do that to them i would never i love them i want them to be as aware as they can be you know mm. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, first thing, I guess, everybody loves to hate pop music, and I just don't give a shit. If you if you just listen to music that you like, I don't. Yeah. Why is it like a societal problem that pop music exists? Like, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> if if you listen to music for you know like the art, and if you write music, you're you're gonna want to listen to like a a big variety of things and learn techniques for different things but like if you like pop music who cares but also i feel like tucker you're like kind of maybe i'm secretly a conspiracist i feel like he's kind of described most of human history there's people who have immeasurable power and then they have to find a balance between maintaining their own power and not pissing off all of the people underneath them so much that they revolt and it's, it's like, you know, like there were kings and there were leaders and there were like everything. Um, and people of someone, eventually someone took a step too far and then there was a revolution. And like, that's how society has evolved since humans have been around almost. So yeah. like, I feel like he's kind of on, on track a little bit with that. Yeah. It, what's interesting to me. The existence of music he doesn't like has to have a goal behind it. This is something that some people are doing to him. It's not just that people have different tastes. It's that it's the purpose of this music is to dull the population and make them less aware. And 
it, even and that's just like, crazy conspiracy shit. I I can see. <laughs> and, and even in there, when he when he says like, uh, it, you know, weed is bad. I'm probably addicted to nicotine. It enhances my life. Well, it's because that's your addiction, Tucker. And like, what he does, that's got to be good. Anything else that he doesn't like, that's part of this conspiracy against him and people like him. <sighs> um, Didn't he say he spends three hundred dollars a week on nicotine gum or something? He sure did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he complains about the people who are rich. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, that, that was just really telling to me that even something as mundane as fucking pop music is a part of this, like, nefarious worldview. Everything he doesn't like, right? Yeah. So tying that into the broader conspiracism thing, there are always these villains. It, it makes the world simpler. If you, can, if you can defeat the villain behind everything, that's going to solve all our problems. If you trace these conspiracists to villains to their roots, it's almost always anti-Semitism, because all of this shit stems from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. That's where, like, anti-Semitism is a unique form of bigotry in that, like, n- no other group that is discriminated against, their oppressors don't think that they secretly run the world. Like, that's exclusive to Jews. It's so weird. I don't... I, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but, like... The lengths people go to blame Jews for things is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's fucking absurd, man. Yeah. Um. So, it, mo- most people who get into this conspiracist worldview, they don't know that at the bottom of the well they're drinking from, it's all anti-Semitism. But it historically, it, this is all like read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, or don't. It might not be good for people to read that. <laughs> it, make your own decision, but. <laughs> Anyway, uh, for conspiracists, the people behind everything might be the New World Order, the Majestic Twelve, the Illuminati. For Alex Jones, it's the globalists. For QAnon, it's the worldwide satanic pedophile cabal. For Tucker, it's the elites. And that one is more nebulous, more vaporous than the others. The definition of who and what these elites are is pretty opaque. Make no mistake, though, they exist in the same pantheon of conspiracist villains. Here's a clip from just a couple of weeks ago, after President Biden gave his first press conference. Tucker brings on Mark Stein to discuss the press conference. And they have an exchange that I found very revealing. But I wonder, no, no. do you think he's, he's serious about another term? I mean, it's a little early, by the way, to announce that. And what do you think Kamala Harris thinks of this? And should he get a food taster? I think he is serious about another term. I have no idea right now who the government of the United States is. But if the deep state can get away with this, the deep state can pull anything off, because basically they're saying we don't need anyone in the Oval Office. He's not in the Oval Office. He's uh, he's down in the basement with the, the tapioca and the Andy Griffith reruns all day. Uh, and the deep state yeah. is saying if we can pull this off, we don't need anyone in the Oval Office. That's superfluous. That, that is so deep and true. And I, it's hard to be angry at Biden. I mean, you know, he's happily feeding cashews to his dog in his bedroom. And that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. I respect my elders. But this is a display of strength by the permanent state. Four years ago, I didn't even believe in the permanent state, having spent my whole life in D.C. Now, I think you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. This is the people behind the curtain saying we're in charge. Before we get into anything else, who feeds cashews to their dog? Yeah, that's weird. It's a little (laughs) weird. But as a criticism of Joe Biden, like, weak sauce? Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I can think of other presidents who spent time watching Fox News 
all day instead of <laughs> governing. So, like, I don't know. Feeding your dog seems like an okay thing to spend your time doing, even if you're president. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a lot better for you. Yeah. Um, so, Tucker believes in the deep state. The people behind the curtain orchestrating a theatrical Biden presidency. He doesn't use the phrase deep state, unlike his, his guest, Mark Stein. Tucker calls it a permanent state. Just like his answer about diversity at the National Conservatism Conference, he recognizes that he's in territory that could potentially be damaging to him. So he obfuscates with different language. If confronted, he could argue that the permanent state he's talking about is just a bunch of career bureaucrats who stay in the same job as between administrations. But he's agreeing with Mark Stein here, he calls it deep and true, that the deep state is behind this false Biden presidency. Right. He he also says that four years ago he didn't believe in the permanent state, but now he does, which I thought was interesting. And like I said, Mark Stein, who you just heard, he happens to be on the margins of a whole lot of this. I, I'm, I'm going to look into him a bit more in the coming weeks. I think he might be more of a problem than I realized when I ignored him. Like, a couple of weeks ago, he, he hosted Tucker's show when Tucker was off for a day. What? And I didn't even listen to that episode because I hate Mark Stein's voice. But. <laughs> yeah, I, I was trying to make a joke about Mark Stein's voice. He's he's just like, I don't know, but it yeah. would have been rude. You know? <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm going to have to start paying a bit closer attention to him. So I promise we're going to get to what Tucker said last Thursday. But I want to make one more stop just to really prove that I'm not grasping at straws here. This is a clip from Tucker's show on March 31st. He opens that episode by talking about Canada's mandatory quarantine policy for people entering the country. First tonight, what if your next door neighbor suddenly went dangerously insane and started holding people hostage in his house? Would you consider that threatening? Would you even notice it? Those are not theoretical questions. Something very much like that just happened in our national neighborhood. Canada, the landmass directly to our north, our single largest trading partner, the country with whom we share the longest international border in the world, Canada, took a dramatic move toward legitimately dangerous authoritarianism. In Canada, yes. Okay, so once again, this is not an analogous example. Um, holding people against their will is not analogous to people want to come into the country so they have to prove they're not going to kill all of my citizens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he, he's talking about Canada requiring people who enter the country to quarantine for three days in an approved quarantine hotel. It's only three days? Yeah. He's uh, fucking bitching uh, about uh, it? Okay. Uh, I guess, like, after the three days, you're allowed to leave the hotel, but you're supposed to, like, promise you'll quarantine for another ten days. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> and while they're at the hotel, they have to take a COVID test and get a negative result before they can leave. I, I did some reading. It does seem like there are some fair criticisms of the program, but it's not particularly relevant to what we're talking about here. The reason I'm playing this now is because Tucker uses some very specific language in this segment that caught my ear. Back in November, Justin Trudeau admitted what's going on here. It's not about coronavirus stopping the virus saving lives. No, this pandemic, he said, is an opportunity to permanently change Western civilization. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. The Great Reset! And we don't want to give Justin Trudeau too much credit. He may be sinister, but he's not smart. It's not like he thought that phrase up. 
No, he took it from his role models in this country. At a forum hosted by the World Economic Forum in mid-November, John Kerry, our new climate czar, laid it out. Yes, he said, the Great Reset will happen. And I think it will happen with greater speed and with greater intensity than a lot of people might imagine. In effect, the citizens of the United States have just done a Great Reset. We've done a Great Reset. And it was a record level of voting. We're at the dawn of an extremely exciting time. Has it been extremely exciting for you? Has it been extremely exciting for most Americans as the people in charge mismanaged this country all the way to the brink? No, it probably hasn't been. It's been a sad time for most people. But for power-mad leaders hoping to eliminate centuries of constitutional restraints on their own ambitions, it is indeed an exciting time. All right. So the Great Reset. Have you ever heard of the Great Reset, Tyler? No. Um, it would have been so nice if if America had been like, oh, hundreds of thousands of people are dying and our hospitals are full maybe we should like fix some of these problems but instead we did the opposite of that (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah for those blessed among you who don't keep up with the ideas that circulate on the far right here's what's going on here early last year as COVID-19 ripped through the global population and shattered much of the world's economy The World Economic Forum, a conference of rich people that's a regular target of right-wing conspiracism, held a conference where the theme was called the Great Reset. The idea was that because COVID-19 was going to destroy much of the world's economy, it created, created an opportunity for philanthropists to target their investments toward rebuilding the global economy in a way that's more equitable and more receptive to dealing with climate change. It's just an optimistic take on the world's post-pandemic future, Immediately, though, conspiracists seized on the Great Reset as evidence that these elites were setting up a world government and ushering in a new world order. Generally, the theory goes like this. The people behind the scenes, be they globalists or the satanic pedophile cabal or whoever your preferred villain is, uh, secretly engineered COVID-19 in a lab and unleashed it on the world with the goal of shattering the world economy so that they can build a new one in their image. They also used COVID-19 as a pretext to, de- to depose Donald Trump, their greatest opponent, and install Biden, their senile and servile puppet, <laughs> to help usher in this totalitarian state and, impl- and implement a mandatory vaccine regime that will render everyone slaves to the New World Order. The details of the theory will, will vary a bit based on the preferred conspiracy flavor of whoever is peddling it at the time, but that tends to be generally the outline of it. In that speech by Justin Trudeau that Tucker just played a sample of, he makes he also makes mention of building back better, and since that was also Joe Biden's campaign slogan, conspiracy theorists latched onto that as proof that Trudeau and Biden were both in on the Great Reset, and that this is a coordinated effort by whoever's behind the scenes at the World Economic Forum. So when this segment aired on Tucker's show a couple of weeks ago, I honestly found it confusing. He is hitting all the broad strokes of the Great Reset conspiracy theory, but he isn't explicitly embracing any of the details of it. I didn't understand at the time why he was using the language of conspiracists without committing to the conspiracy. And then it got even more confusing because he brings on Mark Stein to talk about this. In the middle of that conversation, Mark Stein dropped another conspiracist canard. So if you had a country that decided we're just going to shut ourselves off from all impure foreign influences, we're going to go full North Korea, mm. and nobody who's infected mm. with some weird foreign disease can come in. Okay, that's a position. That's your position. (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of describing an ethnostate almost. (laughs) 
This only yeah. applies to COVID. There are an awful lot of diseases right. much more dangerous than COVID. I don't, I know no one's getting screened for Ebola. I mean, you can fly right from Congo. No one's asking no. if you have Ebola. Why just no, COVID? Well, actually, is, is there no COVID patient lobby that's pushing back? Is that what it is? Well, no, I think it's part of the great bifurcation of society. You see it at the, the contrast between the southern border of the United States and the northern border is actually very telling because for one group of people, it doesn't, it, if you, if you come across the Rio Grande and you test positive, uh, they then, the United States government then drives you to the nearest Grand Hyatt and puts you up in a junior suite at $400 a night at U.S. taxpayers' expense, as opposed to the Canadian model where uh, citizens of the country have to pay two grand uh, to be imprisoned uh, by the government of Canada. This is what's going on all over the world, all over the civilized world, is the bifurcation. There's some people uh, who are subject to micro-regulation to the point where they're forbidden to leave their rooms for a year on end, and then there's other kinds of people, approved groups of people, like all these people at the southern border, uh, you test positive and America is your oyster. They'll pay for you to come and infect as many people as you want. Oh my god, I hate his voice so much. It's like, the worst. <laughs> <laughs> the world is your oyster. Um, okay, he's equivocating COVID and Ebola. Yeah. Didn't Ebola kill, like, two people or something? <laughs> yeah, it's all it's not in that clip, but he also complains that they're not screening for a drug-resistant tuberculosis. <laughs> okay, the difference between COVID and those drugs, you dumbass, is that... Hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people around the world, are dying from COVID right now, and it spreads like crazy. Yeah, that does tend to make what? a difference in what you prioritize, <laughs> huh? <laughs> but what stuck out to me there was the phrase, the great bifurcation. Because it's such an oddly specific phrasing, it feels academic, like a distinct observable phenomenon. Like an elite would say. <laughs> so... I spent quite a while tracking down every mention of that phrase I could find on the internet, and it led me to some weird places. Here's an example, written by a, written by a man named Guy Crittenden. Uh, he, he's done some, like, environmental journalism that I think borders on, like, eco-fascism stuff. Um, but <laughs> Sounds he, fun. He's also a believer of the Great Reset conspiracy theory, and he describes a bifurcation between two groups, the masked and the maskless. Forgive me. What is a bifurcation? Uh, to split in two. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Should have said schism. It's more fun to say. Yeah, the great schism <laughs> sounds way cooler. <laughs> the great divide. That's a Linkin Park song. <laughs> the masked, the masked, as he calls them, are the people who believe the official narrative that in early 2020, a novel coronavirus jumped from an animal to a human and that lockdowns, masking, vaccines are an effective way to prevent the spread of that virus. Well, I think it happened in 2019. It just came to America in 2020. But anyway, <laughs> that's why it's COVID-19 and not COVID. Sorry. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Semantics. <laughs> the other group, the maskless, believes the virus is made in a lab and was released deliberately to usher in a great reset. They believe masks do nothing to prevent the spread of the virus and are instead a form of obedience training. And that the vaccines are dangerous drugs that permanently alter human DNA, which they believe is meant to usher in an oppressive system of biocapitalism. 
helping usher a technocracy and scientific dictatorship. Also, all these guys talk about a scientific dictatorship. That all comes from Aldous Huxley, who wrote uh, Brave New World. He came up with the scientific... Yep, the scientific dictatorship. Dictatorship, that, sorry. That was him. Um, he gave, he gave a, a lecture that's actually really interesting. If you have time, listen to it. it. It's a good listen. Okay. I don't know that much about Aldous Huxley, but like, I think the only person I've ever seen talk about him turned out to be a radical conservative, so I don't know if... <laughs> I, I think I think that would really make Aldous Huxley, Huxley upset because that's often the case, and he was not. Um, <laughs> just some of the things he said have been misinterpreted and let, misinterpreted and latched onto by the far right. But yeah, so vaccines are going to usher in a scientific dictatorship of biocapitalism, whatever that means. Um, this is the first step in a depopulation agenda meant to reduce the human population to about half a billion people, most of whom will live in heavily surveilled megacities in a digital feudal, in a digital feudal system controlled by a nefarious billionaire class. Crittenden writes, quote, That's the bifurcation I see underway. All my work these days is designed to avert the disaster I see ensuing if the split continues or deepens. If we can't get past this and soon, I believe we'll have a divided world, with a majority herded into megacities and the control grid and living in a technocratic society, and a minority living in rural areas, attempting some sort of archaic revival. He continues, Sadly, it may be the case that much more of the global reset agenda will have to be imposed before the mass will take the maskless seriously. The game that's afoot, to thwart or heavily modify the world economic forum's plan in time, while allowing the trap to shut a bit further so folks in the maskware group get it. He goes on to talk about resistance groups in Canada trying to break off and form their own government, which he supports. Quote, Huawei facial recognition cameras are installed already in downtown Calgary and places in Nova Scotia and elsewhere. The 5G towers are going up, with hundreds of them deployed during lockdown, when we couldn't protest. Once all the antennae are installed, we'll have no more privacy inside or outside our homes. According to the World Economic Forum, the global reset will be largely complete and the control grid will be fully in place by 2025. We have, therefore, four years at most to derail these plants. The maskless know where they stand and are figuring out a plan. The mask wearers need to decide soon whether or not to join them. Can they afford to be wrong? Can any of us afford to be wrong? And then he ends his article by recommending a bunch of other crazy-ass nutjobs to go and watch for further research into the Great Reset. <laughs> And here's what made me feel fucking insane. Mark Stein is using the exact language that uh, Crittenden is using, but then what Crittenden says the Great Bifurcation is isn't what Mark Stein talks about. He said this is all part of the Great Bifurcation, and then just bitches about Canada treating its border with the U.S. differently than the U.S. treats its border with Mexico. But this is also goddamn specific. You aren't going to tell me that the Great Bifurcation... It's just some coincidental phrasing that Mark Stein pulled out of his ass. Not when he's deploying it in a conversation about the Great Reset and Canada becoming authoritarian. They're using the exact same language in the exact right context as these really far-right conspiracists, without actually elaborating on what those phrases mean in those, in those worlds. To me, that can mean two things. The first is that Tucker and Mark believe a large portion of their audience is already in on it. And this is them throwing a bone to that wing of the audience without getting themselves into trouble. Right. The other possibility, as I see it, is that they want to insert these ground floor ideas into people's minds so that when they encounter the extreme stuff, they already have a context with which they are prepared to be radicalized. I think both can be true. Yeah, for sure. So, 
now we're finally going to get into what Tucker said last Thursday that led to the ADL trying to get him fired. This didn't actually happen on Tucker's show. Rather, Mark Stein was guest hosting Fox Primetime, the hour that immediately precedes Tucker Carlson tonight. During that hour, Stein was talking about airlines not requiring undocumented people to have government-issued ID to fly. My gut check says that Stein is probably misrepresenting that story, but I didn't look into it, because he brings on Tucker Carlson as a guest to discuss that story, and that's when Tucker says this. I'm laughing because this is one of about 10 stories that I know you've covered, um, where the government shows preference to people who have shown absolute contempt for our customs, our laws, Mm. our system itself, and they're being treated better than American citizens. Now, I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Mm. If if look, mm. if this was happening in your house, if you were in sixth grade, for example, and without telling you, your kid, your parents adopted a bunch of new siblings and gave them brand new bikes and let them stay mm. up later and help them with their homework and gave them twice the allowance that they gave you, you would say to your siblings, you know, I think we're being replaced by by kids that our parents love more. And it would be kind of hard to argue against you because look at the evidence. So this matters on a bunch of different levels. But on the most basic level, it's a voting rights question. In a democracy, one person equals one vote. If you change the population, you dilute the political power of the people who live there. So every time they import a new voter, I become disenfranchised as a Mm. current voter. So I don't understand why we don't understand this. I mean, everyone wants to make a racial issue out of it. Ooh, the, you know, white replacement theory. No, no, no. This is a voting rights question. I have less political power because they're importing a brand new electorate. Why should I sit back and take that? The power that I have as an American guaranteed at birth is one man, one vote, and they're diluting it. No, they're not allowed to do that. Why are we putting up with this? He's doing the the disanalogous thing again. (laughs) Uh Immigrants are not analogous to adopted children. There's a just just off the top of my head. Um, you can't, as a child, enter into a family with an inherent, like with a different financial background than people who are already in the family. So you can't. It's it's like if they, like if you start giving them, okay, if you start giving them allowances they're all starting at the same place they're children yeah (laughs) Um, um it would be wrong i think to like give your adopted children twice as much allowance but i don't think that that is what's happening we're helping people who are poor yeah who who are not at the same financial place as native citizens or whatever yeah I, i don't know i think i'd Lost my focus there yeah, a little no, bit, you, but yeah. <laughs> you got the hat trick on bullshit analogies, though, today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was only the second episode of this podcast where we caught Tucker carefully embracing some white genocide narratives when uh, Heather MacDonald came on. Here, he cites the most prominent white genocide narrative, The Great Replacement, and inches right up to referencing it by name. As mentioned, this led to the Anti-Defamation League calling for Tucker's firing, because the Great Replacement Theory is a cornerstone of white supremacist ideology. Mm-hmm. The idea goes that with the complicity and cooperation 
of replacist elites, white populations in the Western world are being demographically and culturally replaced with non-European peoples through mass migration, demographic growth, and a drop in white birth rates. While this type of idea has been floating around since the late 19th century, the term the Great Replacement was popularized by a French author named Renaud Camus. He details the process of the intentional destruction of Western culture by global elites in France, the European Union, and the United Nations, and describes it as genocide by substitution. You might remember when everybody freaked out a few years ago when uh, Rep. Steve King tweeted, you can't sustain your culture with someone else's babies. That is the same shit. <sighs> um, while the term Great Replacement didn't really enter the lexicon until Camus' book by the same name in 2011 took off, the idea of a white genocide orchestrated by powerful elites got a lot of traction in the U.S. before that, from a guy by the name of David Lane. David Lane was a white separatist and a neo-Nazi, who was a member of a, do a domestic terrorist group called The Order. Lane was eventually sentenced to 190 years in prison for, among other things, his involvement in the murder of a Jewish radio host named Alan Berg. He died of prison in 2007. Prior to his death, though, David Lane coined the 14 words. The 14 words are the most well-known and probably the most influential concept in, in modern white supremacy. They are, We must secure the existence of our people in the future for white children. This is the beating heart of white genocide ideologies. So, Tucker is slippery, though. When you listen to that rant, he frames this as a voting rights issue rather than, rather than a race issue. To open his show the following Monday, he doubles down on that framing, responding to the criticism from the ADL and others. So it's a political question, obviously. At least one prediction came true right away. All those little gatekeepers on Twitter did become hysterical. They spent the last four days jumping up and down, furiously trying once again to pull the show off the air. Once again, they will fail, though it is amusing to see them keep at it. They get so enraged. It's a riot. But why all the anger? If someone says something you think is wrong, is your first instinct to hurt them? Probably not. Normal people don't respond that way. If you hear something you think is incorrect, you try to correct it. But getting the facts right is hardly the point of this exercise. The point is to prevent unauthorized conversations from starting in the first place. Shut up, racist! No more questions! You've heard that before. You wonder how much longer they imagine Americans are going to go along with this. An entire country forced to lie about everything all the time. It can't go on forever. But you can see why they're trying it. Demographic change is the key to the Democratic Party's political ambitions. Let's say that again for emphasis because it is the secret to the entire immigration debate. Demographic change is the key to the Democratic Party's political ambitions. In order to win and maintain power, Democrats plan to change the population of the country. They're no longer trying to win you over with their program. They're obviously not trying to improve your life. They don't even really care about your vote anymore. Their goal is to make you irrelevant. That is provably true. So if you're going to say that, you really have to prove it, which he does not. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm stuck on the on the Great Replacement thing. I feel like I have a whole rant I could go on about it. But oh, like, go ahead. <laughs> um, okay, so guide me if I fuck something up. Um, so what white supremacists are seeing is a decline in white people, presumably. But I think that this has more to do with the definition of what a white person is than with some cabal of I don't, elites, whatever they are, trying to 
you know, great replacement. They're trying to replace white people. But it has, but the definition of whiteness is so fragile. If okay, it's it's inherently like a dying thing because humans breed and pass their genes on. But if a white person and a black person have a baby, those babies are black forever. They're not half white, half black. Um, so as more people commingle, these white supremacists are saying, oh, our race is being destroyed. Our, our race is being attacked or whatever. Um, but that's just, it's just a natural progression of humans interacting with each other and whiteness is just a thing that they made up so like and they're using that to fuel fear about about these elites coming in and trying to just eradicate all whites which no one is trying to do they're they're seeing a natural process and they're attributing malice to the elites for causing it right like it, music i don't like being popular must be a plot against me yeah yeah um, <laughs> but but like the great replacement is just it's so i i've heard about it so many times it's such a big deal and like on reactionary youtube a couple years ago um it came up and people still talk about it and it's like it's not a real thing shut yeah. up <laughs> and and tucker is careful to frame this as a voting rights issue he's still talking about it in explicitly conspiratorial terms so they, his elites, the permanent state, are importing a new, more obedient electorate to to disenfranchise people like Tucker on purpose. Whether your concern is voting or not, that's still the great replacement, Tucker. Mm-hmm. But hey, it's not just about race. Provably true. And because it's true, it drives them absolutely crazy when you say it out loud. A hurt dog barks. They scream about how noting the obvious is immoral. You're a racist if you dare to repeat things that they themselves proudly say. Most people go along with this absurd standard. They dutifully shut up. They don't think they have a choice. But no matter what they're allowed to say in public, everyone understands the truth. When you change who votes, you change who wins. That fact has nothing inherently to do with race or nationality. It's the nature of democracy. It is always true. You can watch it happen. You probably have. All across the country, we have seen huge changes in election outcomes caused by demographic change. New people move in and they vote differently. As a practical matter, it doesn't matter what they look like or where they're from even. All that matters is that they have different political views. This is every bit as true when the migrants come from Brookline as when they come from Oaxaca. In Vermont, white liberals fleeing the mess they made in New York turned the state blue. As recently as 1992, Vermont was reliably Republican, hard to believe as that is. Vermont is now a parody of lifestyle liberalism. That's demographic change at work. You see the same thing happening in the state of New Hampshire as refugees from Massachusetts flood north and bring their bad habits with them. Montana, Idaho, Nevada all face similar problems. The affluent liberals who wrecked California aren't sticking around to see how that ends. They're running to the pallid hideaways of Boise and Bozeman, distorting local culture and real estate markets as they do it. Pretty soon, people who were born in the Mountain West won't be able to live there. They'll be, yes, replaced by private equity barons, yoga instructors, and senior vice presidents from Google. Beautiful places are always in danger of being overrun by the worst people. Ask anyone who grew up in Aspen. But in most of this country, it is immigration from other nations more than anything else that has driven political transformation. And this is different from what we've seen in Vermont. Americans have every right to move to new states if they want, even if they have silly political opinions. 
But our leaders have no right to encourage foreigners to move to this country in order to change election results. So it's not about ethnicity, except citizens are allowed to move wherever they want. So it actually is about ethnicity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse. Maybe I should just shut up. But like people move around, therefore people are being replaced? Like what? It, it, it's ridiculous. <laughs> And this is just Tucker being slippery again, building in this fake context to cushion him from the criticisms of what he's actually saying. So, as a little exercise, let's be generous to Tucker here and engage him on the voting rights question. First, we know that Tucker often doesn't vote in national elections. So, but maybe that isn't his main personal concern. I'm, I'm even willing to leave that one alone. Maybe he's concerned about his audience having their vote diluted. Uh, maybe he really cares about his audience's ability to wield political power, and that's the root of all this. Tucker says that demographic change is key to the Democratic Party's political ambitions. And it's true that if immigrants vote, they're more likely to vote for Democrats. However, like most U.S. citizens, most immigrants don't regularly vote. And in fact, their rates of voting are lower than the general population. I mean, how do you vote if you're, if, like, if you don't have a license and there's <laughs> voter ID laws, like... <laughs> And the research that has looked into whether or not immigration helps Democrats uh, has found that the, the shift is generally pretty small, because while immigrants do lean more toward the Democratic Party, increased rates of immigration also tend to spur existing U.S. citizens to vote more Republican. So the, the vote share remains pretty consistent. Furthermore, undocumented, undocumented immigrants obviously are not able to vote in U.S. elections because they're not legally citizens. For documented immigrants, it takes a long fucking time to be able to vote. Generally speaking, and it depends on the type of immigration, but it, as, a, as a general rule of thumb, immigrants are eligible for naturalization after they've been a permanent resident in the U.S. for five years, or if you marry, if you marry and are living with a U.S. citizen, three years. Once you send in, a long time. <laughs> once you send in your naturalization form, there's another 90-day waiting period. Even the most generous proposals to naturalize undocumented people currently living here only provide an eight-year path to citizenship. Jesus Christ. Uh, so for undocumented people living here that Tucker is so concerned about, the process is even longer. If an immigrant comes to the U.S., it's a minimum of one full presidential election cycle before they can cast a vote. Once they are eligible to vote, however, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily make a big electoral difference. A Pew Research study in 2020 found that of the 23 million immigrants eligible to vote in the U.S., 61% of them live in just five states. We have an electoral college in this country, so where those votes are concentrated matters. California has the largest share of immigrant voters, and it's hard to imagine a scenario where California is going to go to the Republican column in the, in the near future, no matter how many immigrants we do or don't allow into the country. Right. Um, the next four states on the list are New York, which is probably less likely to flip red than California, then Florida, then Texas, then New Jersey. With regard to Florida, much of the immigrant population there is Cuban-American, a bloc that is significantly more likely to vote Republican than other Hispanic blocs. In fact, the Cuban-American vote might have been what locked in Florida for Trump in 2020. Oh, really? Um, Texas, on the other hand, is a state that Tucker might fairly have some concerns about. I'll grant. Let's hear Tucker talk a little bit about Texas. They tell you that demographic replacement is an obsession on the right. No, it's not. They say it's some horrifying right-wing conspiracy theory. The right is obsessed with it. No, the left is obsessed with it. 
In fact, it's the central idea of the modern Democratic Party. Demographic replacement is their obsession because it's their path to power. Several years ago, future Obama cabinet secretary Julian Castro went on CBS to explain why Texas will soon be a Democratic state. In a couple of presidential cycles, you'll be on election night. You'll be announcing that we're calling the 38 electoral votes of Texas for the Democratic nominee for president. It's changing. It's going to become a purple state and then a blue state because of the demographics, because of the population growth of folks from outside of Texas. No one attacked Julian Castro for saying that. No one asked who these, quote, folks from outside Texas might be. So if you're trying to prove that you're not a racist, maybe pronounce Julian Castro's name properly. <laughs> Dude, if Texas went blue, that'd be so dope. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> and like a bunch of people this last lecture, like, oh, it's going to happen, man. No, it wasn't even that close. Oh, it'd be so cool, though. <laughs> I can dream, right? <laughs> or why they had a right to control the future of people who already lived in Texas. Nobody said a word about it. It seemed normal. It was normal. It still is normal. In Washington, what qualifies as shocking is any real attempt to protect democracy. In the summer of 2019, then-President Donald Trump promised, falsely as it turned out, that he was going to deport huge numbers of foreign nationals living here illegally. Kamala Harris's response to this was revealing. Harris could have argued, as Democrats often do argue, that deportation is cruel and it's un-American. But she didn't say that. Instead, she told the truth about it. Quote, Let's call this what it is, Harris wrote on Twitter. It's an attempt to remake the demographics of our country by cracking down on immigrants. That this threat is coming from the president of the United States is deeply reprehensible and an affront to our values. We will fight this. But wait a second. Donald Trump has announced, had announced he was deporting illegal aliens. Illegal aliens aren't allowed to vote in our elections. They're not even allowed to live here. How is sending them home to their own countries, quote, an attempt to remake the demographics of our country? Illegal aliens shouldn't even count in the demographics of our country. They're not Americans. Kamala Harris's response only makes sense if you believe that the millions of foreigners breaking our laws to live here are future Democratic voters. So illegal immigrants are almost always Americans and in every meaningful sense, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> They live here and work here and their families here. Yeah, and majority of the time. They're brown, though, which seems to be the problem. Yeah, and that's <laughs> what I wanted to get to, is that Tucker has also done multiple stories in the last couple of weeks about how um, Hispanic people are shifting in, in larger numbers toward the Republican Party. It's still not like an even shift, but Donald Trump did better with Latino voters than any other Republican ever in 2020. Why? <laughs> Why? I want to build a wall to keep your people out. Yeah, we'll vote, <laughs> we'll vote for you. You're, you're our guy. Well, and it, like, I don't want to generalize too much, but like, a lot of them are pretty religious, and so at least like okay, so okay. socially no. conservative stuff. No, that's good. That's a, um, that's a good reason. But yeah, uh, so Tucker's argument here falls apart on its own merits if you consider like these people clearly are capable of aligning with at least the values you find most important, right? So. Why exactly can't the Republican Party attract them? Maybe consider that. Maybe Tucker talks all the time about how the Republican Party should focus more on families. Uh, immigrants like to have families. So maybe if the Republican Party would promote some policies to help families, they would earn more immigrant votes. 
but posturing at for, at helping families is way more fun than actually helping families, Troy, obviously. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tucker's argument here that just on some elemental level that immigrants are always going to vote for Democrats is, I mean, obviously it's racist, but it's also just factually bizarre. <laughs> um and then I also want to point out, we, we were just talking about how hard it is to become a citizen of the United States. So it makes sense that there's going to be people who live here that are illegal. And he's just using that to justify, well, they're not really citizens. It's like, well, if you make it impossible to become a citizen, then obviously they're not going to be citizens. Yeah. <sighs> and his point there about well, Kamala Harris said only makes sense if you think of these people as future Democratic voters. Well, what Tucker is saying only makes sense if you accept that the Democratic Party is intentionally making the country less white to shore up their political power. Or, you know, the Great Replacement Theory. He's enumerating the theory while trying to pretend that's not what he's saying. There's another prong of Great Replacement Theory that we haven't gotten to here, but weirdly enough, it is another passion project of Tucker's, and that's birth rates. Something you'll find all the time in like, white supremacist circles, they're really freaked out about lowering white birth rates and lowering white sperm counts. A couple of weeks ago, Tucker did a story about lowering sperm counts that we made fun of. I thought it was ridiculous he was covering it. Yeah, it's weird. But when you take into context that this is a part of this worldview, that actually makes sense that it's something he would be worried about. He called it, why, he said something like, why isn't this the biggest story? <laughs> right. It's all coming together. Yeah. So, Tucker gave another monologue this past week where he did a better job of explaining what he's actually afraid of, I think. In theory, he was talking about a bill to pack the Supreme Court that isn't going to pass, no matter what, anyway. It should, but it's not, <laughs> not going to. But first tonight, things are changing fast, in case you haven't noticed. Much too fast, actually. People can't metabolize change at this pace. That's not just Fox News viewers or elderly Republican men. It's this whole species. Human beings are not designed for relentless, abrupt changes to the way they live or the way they think. And for most of human history... They didn't have to deal with those changes because they didn't happen much. Societies evolved slowly. Fourth century France was very much like 14th century France. For a thousand years, most people in France spend their lives following domesticated animals around the field and living in thatched huts. And then in the 1700s, someone perfected the steam engine and nothing was ever the same. Life for average people began to change faster and faster and then exponentially faster. And this continued on. It continues now to the present day, a moment in which nearly every morning you awake to a brand new world. If you're over 40, you may have trouble recognizing your own country. It's just too unfamiliar. Now, the self-righteous children on social media don't care to notice this. And when they do, they dismiss it, any complaint about change, as bigotry. But it's not bigotry. It's human nature. Abrupt change causes social chaos, always. Human beings develop customs and habits and generational expectations for a reason. It's not random. Continuity is comforting to people. If you eliminate familiar things overnight, societies fracture. Populations tend to explode. We've seen that happen. The last industrial revolution, in the end, provoked armed revolutions. Hundreds of millions of people died. Germany got Hitler. Eastern Europe got Stalinism. Yes, we did wind up with antibiotics in the end. You can thank technology for that, and we do. But we also got genocide and atomic bombs. There's a lesson here. If you're going to change things, go slowly. Choose the incremental over the immediate. Explain yourself as you do it. Reassure people. Acknowledge the reality of evolutionary biology. It is real. 
Human beings are not born to be machine components. You can't just bang out improved versions of your citizens on a 3D printer. People in real life are complicated and stubborn and hard to control. Even the most open-minded ones get jumpy when suddenly everything's different. Obviously, and you'd think it would be obvious, wise leaders would know that intuitively. If you're going to have relentless technological change, and apparently we are, you cannot inflict relentless social change and expect your society to survive. Things will fall apart if you do that. That's guaranteed. Yet that is exactly what our leaders are currently doing. They're changing everything, whether we like it or not. A new language, new values, new biology, new curricula, new social mores and hiring standards and body types. A brand new national population. And then, because that's still not enough change, a whole new system of government. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it... I feel like that says it pretty well. Tucker is just freaked out that the country looks different than it did when he grew up. He's freaked out that it he looks different than it did yesterday. Yeah. Like <laughs> he's freaked out that he doesn't know every language he hears on the street. He's freaked out that he hasn't tried every food at a restaurant like it. That, that that's all this is, and and he's complaining about oh they're trying to change everything, but these are incremental changes. Like yes. his exact words are, well we should have incremental change. This is incremental change. You don't want incremental change. You want no change. Yeah. So tell me, <laughs> explain yourself, Tucker. Then explain it slowly so we can understand what pace would be acceptable to you. <laughs> so I can't tell you what's in Tucker's heart. Maybe it really is all about cultural values and concerns that are totally unrelated to race. I can't tell you what's in his heart, but I can tell you what kind of waters he's fishing in to get his ideas from. And I can tell you where those rivers tend to lead. Brenton Harrison Tarrant, the terrorist responsible for the Christchurch New Zealand shooting that killed 50, 51 people and injured 49, named his manifesto The Great Replacement. Patrick Crucius, the man responsible for the 2019 El Paso shooting, posted an online manifesto titled The Inconvenient Truth, which he alluded to the Great Replacement, mentioning a Hispanic invasion of Texas leading to a cultural and ethnic replacement that justified the shooting. Dylan Roof believed a race war against whites was imminent when he killed nine people in a church. The Pittsburgh Synagogue shooting? The shooter there believed in white genocide. I could go on and on and on and on, over and over again. These things, these ideas, lead to terrible violence. So... I want to do a little thought experiment to close this out here today, Tyler. Okay. Imagine for a moment you're you're someone, maybe you're a little older, you don't know a ton about politics, it's just never been of much interest to you, but you, you watch Tucker's show, and you hear, oh, well, Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden, they're on, they're on this great reset thing. They're trying to import all these different people and change everything so fast. And then maybe you, uh, you know, you're Googling around one night, you're having a glass of wine, you wind up on Stormfront, and you right. see somebody talking about it. Oh, I've heard about that before. Mm-hmm. And you remember, even Tucker justified your doubt. Four years ago, I didn't believe in the deep state. Now I do. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, maybe there is something to this. It, you go down the rabbit hole that leads you to shooting up a mosque. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been thinking a lot about this as a, as a two-way filter, right? Because a lot of these ideas, they start... At the at the narrow end of the filter, where they don't have a very large audience, and that's where their the ideas are most concentrated. It's this is the Jews doing this. This is where you get your David Dukes. Yeah. And then as ideas work their way up wider up the funnel, uh, the edges get sanded off. So Jews become globalists, become elites, 
and eventually it ends up at the top of the funnel with the widest audience on the most watched cable news show in America. Right. And it's just like these vague elites that are out to get you. Yeah. You know, it's... Yeah. Yeah. So then you're, you have some context. These ideas are familiar to you. So when you go back down the funnel and you start seeing that it's about Jews and shit, it seems less crazy. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, yeah, that, that that's all I got. For this week, not yeah. and like I, I've brought this up before, but like I can attest that like, you know, if you're in a bad mindset, like there are a lot of good reasons to be unhappy about your life if you're an American right now, because you know we're on average not making very much money, and there's a ton of wealth inequality, and our healthcare sucks, and our transportation sucks, jobs are hard to get, and college is expensive, and it, there's a lot of reasons to be mad. So if someone comes along and says it's not your fault, someone is someone is in charge and they're trying to fuck with you, that is a really appealing idea. Like um I don't know how 4 or 5 years ago now, like I kind of fell into like some anti-SJW anti-feminism YouTube garbage and I had to like find it in myself to be like, you know, I'm I'm a white guy. I'm I'm not at risk of being (laughs) threatened by women. I don't know. But like, you know, I, I completely understand how people fall down this rabbit hole, but it's like, I don't know. I guess a a portion of the reason we're doing this podcast is I want to try to protect people from that. Um, Yes. (laughs) And like, it sounds weird to say this because it seems scary. The idea that there's a, satanic child-eating cabal running the world yeah that'd be scary if Uh, it was real yeah (laughs) but in a way i mean if you can blame everything wrong in the world on this cabal isn't that doesn't that make it so much less scary that we can just we can get if we just get rid of this group of group of people behind everything all these problems go away right right there's this one obvious villain and it's not systemic change that we have to count on politicians to vote correctly to change like that's a different kind of scary but it's it's the real world (laughs) Yeah, so I think, if I can get heady again, I think this is probably the most important episode we've done so far, and also the one that left me feeling the most upset. Yeah, um, it's not good that he's bringing The Great Replacement onto his show. That's that's bad. <laughs> this is where, like, because Tucker, is, he revels in being a contrarian, right? So mm-hmm. if you if you call for him to be taken off the air, he fucking loves that shit. He's going to double down so hard. Yeah. <laughs> It it's just this back and forth of like re radicalization. I don't know how to get out of it. Like I think what we're doing is a good approach, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um something I heard I heard this week from other leftists that I follow. Um a wide variety of strategies is good. There are there are other people doing podcasts, there are other people on YouTube, there are other people uh, you know, elsewhere. So um you know, by having a niche, I think I think we are doing the right thing. So, or at least we're trying. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think you should feel good about what we're doing for sure. Well, Tyler, uh, what's our sworn enemy this week? I'll tell you who our sworn enemy is. It's fucking Bill Gates <laughs> <laughs> and his liberal elitist engineers who are going to dim the sun <laughs> by putting giant polarized sunglasses on the earth. <laughs> Yeah. Also, if this is all a big conspiracy, how fucking convoluted is this plan? They need to replace all the white people, 
but also they need to dim the sun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if you don't, if you don't mind, I just want to follow up. A few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about Matt Gates, um, alleged uh, child sex trafficker. Yeah. Um, and since then, it has come out that Matt Gates requested from the previous administration a blanket pardon. A thing innocent people do. Oh, that's so funny. I mean, horrible, but so funny, because it's Matt Gates and fuck him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Matt Gates, confirmed child sex trafficker. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Matt, Matt Gates did that shit. <laughs> um, so, so we can just have a bonus uh, sworn enemy, Matt Gates, just all the time, but in particular right now, uh, for, for fucking children. So... Um, yeah, I just wanted to, just thought I'd make sure that we covered that since it, we talked about it on the show. All so, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so fuck Bill Gates, fuck Matt Gates, fuck all the Gates. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll be back in the meantime. Gates we- Gate, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the gate to end all Gates. <laughs> the Gates bifurcation. Okay. I think we'll just keep going. If yeah, they're trying stop. to bifurcate these Gates slid and all the nine white people. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we need to dim the sun so that nobody develops any more melanin. <laughs> Figured it out. I'm, I'm a conspiracy theorist now. Hell yeah. <laughs> Me too. All right, everybody. We'll be back next week to talk about the great bleaching. <laughs> In the meantime, we have a website that's chuckitoutpod.com. Email the show, chuckitoutpod at gmail.com. Uh, we have a Patreon. I've offici- there are officially some tiers now, so... Uh, you can get some stuff if you have extra money. If you don't, don't bother. It's not that good stuff. Uh, <laughs> Your candor, Troy. Yeah, I, uh, not a salesperson. <laughs> all right. Uh, Just why we're podcasters, right? <laughs> yeah, so we'll see you all. Have a good week. Don't watch Tucker's show. I'll do it for you and try to enjoy your life. Thanks for listening. Buck up. It's going to get better. <laughs>